The book of Genesis speaks of the beginning, hence the name Genesis. It means beginning, the beginning of the universe there in the opening chapters, the beginning of the earth and life on the planet, the beginning of mankind and marriage and the purpose of life. And we are introduced to the one who declares himself to be the beginning, he says there. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the beginning, and I'm the end. And so the first two chapters of Genesis, just to get situated before we dive into uh, three quarters of a way into Genesis, um, the first couple chapters show us the, the beautiful, flawless creation. God surveys the work of his hands, and he says, good, very good. Genesis also tells us the beginning of all of our troubles. And it was only 56 verses in, the story unfolds, human rebellion, death, and the curse. And by chapter 3 there, paradise has been lost, uh, the fall of man has happened, and for the next 31,000 verses, God tells us how he went about to fix our greatest problem. He told the guilty pair at the scene of the crime he would send a conqueror born of a virgin right there in the Garden of Eden. He said, the seed of the woman, this man will be born, a divine being, a man who will crush your head. Speaking to his adversary, which is Satan in the Hebrew is adversary. That's the meaning of the word Satan. And he said he would destroy his work. Uh, so then Genesis also is the beginning of the story of redemption. So to get our bearings here, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. 1 through 11, really, you can divide uh, Genesis into two parts. 1 through 11 covers 2,000 years. Creation, fall, flood, and the origin and the dispersal of the nations and languages. Part 2, chapters 12 through 50, it only covers 200 years, but it's the most important part of Genesis. And tonight we'll be picking up in chapter 37. Let me show you a slide for an excuse to use this again. <laughs> All right. The second half of Genesis, starting at, at chapter 12, going all the way to the end of the book, covers the life and times of the children of Israel. His name is Jacob. It gets changed to Israel. Here's what happened. Here are the patriarchs. So the way that redemption is going to start is that he promised to bring a conqueror, a virgin-born savior, right, through a people. And so we're going to meet the family through whom the Messiah, meaning Savior, comes. And so we, he starts with one man, and he's going to make the, him into a family, and then he's going to make these guys into a nation, the 12 tribes or the 12 heads of the states of Israel. So really, when you talk about Jewish people, you're talking about them as the children of Israel. Yeah, we call the country Israel, but Israel's an actual man who had 12 sons. And so therefore, every Jew is a, a child of Israel, children of Israel. This is a, now 
why they're called Jews is a shortcut from the word Judah where most of the Jews in, were living in those ancient times. And so uh, this is what we have. So Abraham has this miraculous uh, son, Isaac, and Isaac marries Rebekah and has Jacob, who's uh, now his new name is Israel. And then uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of dysfunction. We could talk about it, right? <laughs> uh, all right. And the cool thing about this is, is that the Lord enters into a dysfunctional human race to redeem us. So uh, he understands about dysfunctional families more than we can ever know. And the other encouragement is, is that he doesn't expect perfection. He understands firsthand what it's like to be born into and be raised in a family that we're at odds with one another. And so what happened, I'm going to explain it right here. He fell in love with this one, Rachel, right? So he got deceived. He proposed to Rachel. The dad agreed to give him Rachel, but instead gave him Leah, the sister. So he had to marry the sister and work seven years for his father-in-law to get the one he really loved. And so then he gets, after seven years, he gets to marry her, but she can't have kids. So this one can have kids, and now they get into a baby war, all right, because they want to please Jacob, right? And so uh, since this one's having kids, Rachel says, well, I'm going to have a maidservant, and she's going to be a surrogate for me. And so she's going to have a couple kids. Well, lo and behold, I don't want to steal the thunder from the... the um text to come, uh, but she eventually does get pregnant. Well, these boys, one, two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, are going to be the twelve tribes of Israel, their father, you see. And so that's just a, a, a thing. And now I just want you to know that Jesus will be traced from, he's also a descendant from these people, according to his human nature, He's related blood to them. And Mary, Mary can trace her lineage through kings all the way up to Abraham. And there are 42 great granddaughters or grandsons. And so Joseph also, we didn't need him to be blood related, but Joseph also is a descendant of Abraham and King David. Both Mary and Joseph come blood to King David. And so when the Lord is born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is blood related to Mary, of course, who is blood related all the way down here, coming through, where's Jude? Judah, right? He comes through Judah. He, this is his great, 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 42 times grandfather, you see. This is why we have to get to know this family. Because not only is he going to come through this family, this family is going to reflect him in many ways, even bad ways, going to reflect the bad aspects of sin and the gospel. And so uh, the characters themselves tell the story about Jesus and his work on the cross. And no one does that better than this guy, Joseph. And that's why in Genesis, what is it, 12 or 13 chapters is going to focus on one man's life. Why? Because as A.W. Pink, a scholar, uh, says, there are 102 definite similarities, prophetic foreshadowing of Joseph to, that shows us and teaches us something 
about Jesus. And so with that, I think you're ready to dive into this family. Here we go. All right, and uh, see what's going on. Long story short, a son of Abraham with a great God-given destination, destination, destiny, I should say. This is a destination, heaven. He has uh, great favor with the Father, despised and rejected by his own people, betrayed and attacked unto death. But God highly exalts him to the highest position in, in the land that at the name of Joseph, every new will bow. Sound familiar? Yeah, good, good. And what was meant for evil, this is your bottom line, your tag for the entire book. What what was meant for evil, God used for good for the saving of many lives. First one, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob, Joseph. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's concubine, surrogate, and the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's uh, maidservant. His father's wives, so he has four wives. Technically, he only wanted one. He got more than he bargained for. And he brought uh, their father a bad, Joseph brought their father, Jacob, a bad report about the boys, his half-brothers. Now Israel, now he's going to be going by his second name, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented uh, ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that infamous robe (laughs) and that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. We'll pause there. So, note takers, we're off to a difficult start, aren't we? An unhealthy family dynamic is obvious. The tension, palpable. The story begins, Joseph is a junior in high school in our terms. Things don't look so promising, do they? You may be asking, why do you say that? Well, first we have a blended family, verse 2. You know how easy that is, right? With all of the step-parents and the half-siblings and the rivalries and the resentments and the jealousies. So it's kind of a a setup for failure there as far as relationships go. Uh, Joseph is working the family farm. He's shepherding with at least four of the half-brothers there. The moms are mentioned. The guys are out in the field. Uh, The 12 boys, really, it probably means all of them. They all share the same dad, and they have, as I've been saying, four different moms. Now, we gather that Joseph is kind of, uh, as far as kids go, he's a good kid. He's upstanding, kind of young man. I imagine he has straight A's. He's a member of the honor society. He says, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. He's morally inclined, and it makes his brothers look all the more worse, you see. And he has a bad habit of informing dad, verse 2, when his half-brothers are behaving badly. So he says things like this at the dinner table. Dad, Dan and Natalie are letting the livestock practically starve. I don't know where they are all day. Maybe taking a nap. You know, dad, Gad and Asher are helping themselves to the petty cash. Dad, the guys are drinking behind the barn. Well, we call that tattling 
and everyone knows how we feel about tattletales, especially if we're the object of the tattling. <laughs> but Jacob, the dad, appreciates Joseph's loyalty, his concern for his father's vested interests, and it endears Joseph all the more to his father's heart. As it's written in Proverbs, a wise son makes a glad father, Proverbs 10 and verse 1. But the other sons, they're foolish. And the Proverbs also says, a foolish son brings grief and pain to his father. So it makes sense. The son that makes him glad is the son that evokes special love. That's not the only reason they have this special bond. Verse 3, Joseph is the product of his love marriage. The only woman he loved who couldn't have kids for 14 years while everybody else is producing babies. And as he's growing old and has long since given up that he and his lovely wife, the one wife, the one woman he cares about in all of this mess, finally says... I'm pregnant. And so uh, he was a little bit older. And uh, because of this, it really endeared him to that boy. Now, sad, uh, maybe uh, a few years later, Rachel, this lovely wife that he loves, dies giving birth. The other three women are alive. The one he loves dies. Joseph perhaps looks like Rachel a little bit. So he clings to his son because he misses his wife. And so this is part of the reason that Joseph has a, a special place. And he's not afraid to tell the whole world about his feelings for this kid, right? And so uh, to make sure no one's left wondering who's his favorite, um, Dad makes uh, a, a tailored uh, suit for him, as, as it were. Uh, now infamous coat of many colors, right? Now, the way the language goes, it, it tells us that the, it's not everyday robe. It's this prestigious robe. And multiple colors, the length uh, to the wrist and all the way to the ankles, it's clearly a garment of privilege and status. It was like buying a suit and tie for Joseph from Nordstrom's and overalls from Walmart for the rest of the boys. <laughs> so Joseph, uh, uh, Jacob was clearly making a statement, this is the guy who I want to inherit the family farm and to run the family. He had the birthright and it was obvious and the brothers are not taking this very well. And so, uh, and we see, not surprisingly, that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 4, uh, funny how people uh, will hate the object of the favoritism rather than the one showing the favoritism in the first place and causing the problem. Jacob is a sinner and he is a fallen human being. And when Bible characters are meant to typify Jesus, you remove all of their flaws and all of their sins because there are none in our Savior. Uh, but Jacob, 
as a father may have expressed, as a fallen human father, may have expressed this special love for his boy in, in let, let us say, in less than sensitive and, and less than helpful ways. And no doubt it fueled their envy and their hostility. One writer said this, parents must realize that they will have different relationships with each of their children. Friendship with some will be easier and more natural than with others. But it's the truest wisdom and highest love to keep such mysteries from ever being known. (laughs) Those are secrets that we take to the grave with us. We don't even give them life. And so uh, let's talk about some, we're going to move on, but let's talk about some of the prophetic shadows here. Okay, so number one, obviously God the Father has a special love for his only begotten son, right? And he was not shy in letting the world know, right? I mean, a star at the birth, at birth um, a voice from heaven three times, three times in the narrative in the Gospels, Luke 3, Luke 9, John 12. This is my son from heaven, a voice that they heard in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. Man, and talk about a coat of many colors, man. A robe of righteousness, of majesty, of royalty. And, and didn't the disciples get a little glimpse of that robe on the Mount of Transfiguration? It said it was so dazzling they almost went blind from it. And so, yeah, we've got some some similarities here with the father's favor and this beautiful robe. (laughs) Yeah, so like Joseph, Jesus is raised surrounded by half-brothers who hate him. They're jealous and envious of him. They're growing up with a morally inclined teenager, Jesus, the son of God. He wasn't uh, a a perfect 20-year-old when he was 13. He was a perfect 13-year-old. And that brought out the worst in his siblings. John chapter 7, they hate him. They despise him. They think he call him, they call him a lunatic. They don't believe until the resurrection when he goes to them in his resurrected body. So there's another similarity of the half-brothers and their hatred and all of this. And so, yeah, Jesus brings a bad report to God the Father, doesn't he? He tattles, as it were. He says, hey, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world and men hate the light and prefer darkness because they do the wrong thing. So nobody likes to be called out for being evil, you know, and so his Jewish family couldn't speak peaceably to him, quoting from Joseph's life. And then not only that, uh, not only could they today they still can't speak peaceably to him or about him. May the good Lord help you. If you're from a Jewish family, you can become a criminal. You can become a Buddhist. You could become new age. You could become an atheist. But if you mention that you have converted to Jesus, they will have a funeral for you, never speak to you again, and write you out of the family well. And in many cases, that's costly. Yeah. What's different? It's the same thing going on as a foreshadow there. So let's go forward. Verses 5 through 11. 
two paragraphs this time. Joseph has a dream, and when he tells it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. <laughs> Just got to know about a little bit of discernment there. You already know they're miffed at you. I don't know about telling the dream, but here we go. Verse 6, he says to them, listen, fellows, I had this dream. Maybe you can help me figure it out. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, wrapping up those little stalks together, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while all of your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed low. (laughs) His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream. No, Joseph, please, no. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. And he told it to his brothers. Listen up. I had another one of those dreams. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, 11 stars are bowing down to me. When he told father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this? What is going on? Is this dream? What is going on? Will your mother and I, speaking of stepmother now, because Rachel has passed. Leah is his stepmom. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. We can go to the first dream, Spencer. Now, you know, is Joseph, uh, as some commentators say, he's 17, maybe he's a little cocky, and maybe this is a little war, you know, where they would say, you're not the boss of us. You got your little robe, you're not the boss of us. And he has the dream and says, oh yeah? <laughs> Let me tell you about a dream. I am the boss of you, and I will be the boss of you. Well, you know what? The text does not indict him. The, the, the narrator, Moses and the Holy Spirit, they don't attribute that to him. So we're going to let that one go. Uh, maybe he's just super excited and he's plain immature. And inadvertently, you know, he pours kerosene on a fire that's already burning brightly. He knows they're already uh, agitated with him. And so hey guys, in case you don't have enough reason to hate me, uh, let me tell you, I had, I had this dream that one day you're all going to bow down before me and I will reign over you. Uh, so it's unclear if Joseph really knows the meaning, but the brothers know like that. And, and honestly, I don't think you need to be a prophet to figure this one out. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Binding sheaves, I've got a picture of it. There it is. All right, and so he's like, my sheaf stood up and all of yours came around and bowed low to me. Oh, that's the picture. And so interesting little aside here, sheaves really have to do with food and bread or lack thereof. And food and bread are going to be a big part of the story. So God is being a multitasker as usual at doing his thing. Now the thug brothers... I've been calling them, I've been writing down here the unrighteous brothers. As opposed the unrighteous brothers. Their conclusion is interesting. 
So you actually think that you're going to rule over us, you know. Oh, you're so much better than we are. Hey, I didn't say that. I'm just telling you about a dream. I'm just telling you. I, I mean, I didn't ask for it, you know. Notice they attribute the dream to Joseph's own obnoxious delusions of grandeur. This is what you want. This is what you think about while you're falling to sleep. How you could be our boss and superior to us. And so you have a dream about what your intentions are. So they don't see it as a divine inspiration revealing some future destiny. Uh, so in that, instead they're saying, this is what our narcissistic, egomaniac, overly coddled, spoiled brat baby brother envisions for himself. And so, not surprisingly, and they hated him even more. One commentator said, careful sharing your lofty dreams with others. Most people are not humble enough or other-centered enough to respond in a godly way. Uh, they hated him all the more, yet he told them the second dream. Wow. Unbelievable. So surely I'm gonna I'm gonna say that was uh, uh, unless he started saying, Dad, guys, I had one of those dreams again, and this time I was uh, like that kind of tone. I could understand, and I think that's probably what he was doing. He's troubled. He's troubled. Help me. It was so vivid and so real, and you know how are we gonna figure this out? You know. So now you know. This dream is even more stellar, pun intended. Sun and moon represent dad and mom. The 11 stars, the brothers bowing down to me, he says. Wow. And I don't think he says it the way I'm saying it. All right. I think he's perplexed. I think his heart is troubled. And he just wants to tell dad. He loves his dad. And he knows his dad loves him. And he's like, dad, what's up? And so... In desperation, he says, Dad, I had one of those dreams again. And then uh, Jacob is like, okay, hold on. Hey, hey, hey. Sun and, uh, sun and moon? Yeah, me and, my, me and my wife? Oh, no. In the Old Testament here, bro, listen up, son. Uh, children respect their parents, and children bow before their parents, and you rise and bow in the presence of the aged. We don't bow before you. So he's a little caught off guard uh, you know, the bro the brothers, yeah, the brothers bow to you? That's fine with me. But, you know, I just had to bow to my brother Esau and eat a bunch of dirt, you know, and humble myself and bow to somebody, you know. And now I got to bow to my own son. Uh, I don't understand. Maybe you need to simmer down. Now, it is a little bit of a, of, of a rebuke. And he is kind of saying just that that doesn't make sense at all. And so, uh, yeah, Jesus, you know, what about his dreams? What about his allusions to future greatness? They're everywhere in the gospel. In, in his teaching, he puts himself on the throne of the universe in the stories. It's him speaking. Depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, so that's the throne of God. And Jesus puts himself future tense as he told Caiaphas, you're asking me under oath if I'm the son of God? Well, I'll tell you, one day you're going to all see me coming in the clouds with great glory, seated at God's right hand of power. That's a dream. 
of future glory. So you see the similarities uh, there. And so, yeah, Jesus knew who he was and where he was headed and uh, spoke of that future glory. But he did so with humility. And also uh, he said he was gentle and humble in heart. He didn't walk around. He said, I didn't come to, to be served. I came to serve, you see. And so, uh, yeah, there's no kind of cockiness with Jesus. He uh, was humble, a man just acquainted with grief and sorrows. And nobody thought that Jesus was overly cocky at all. That's one thing they never accused him of. I do like this. The, the brothers are jealous, uh, but the father, quote, kept these things in mind. See verse 11? You know what that means? Remember when Mary heard from an angel that her son, born to her, would sit on a throne and reign forever? She pondered all these things in her heart. Same idea. It is that, okay, I don't get this. I'm a little offended by it. Uh, in Joseph's, in Jacob's case, that I'm going to have to bow to my kid like that. And the whole, all of us will be bowing low to him. But you know what? He's a spiritual man. He's wrestled with God himself. The angel of the Lord wrestled with him. He's heard God's voice. So he knows, aha, I'm going to file this in the back and keep chewing on it and just keep it in there. So yeah, Jacob is bewildered, but, and, and, and the brothers are insanely jealous. Moving on 12 through 17. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem and Israel, Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. Now we're talking about 50, 60 miles total. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they might be grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. This is a quick stop here. Uh, the scene is set for the violent drama that's awaiting us. Uh, the father sends his son to check on things. Sound familiar? Yeah, the father does send his son. And the father realizes that the sons might be up to no good. And who better to send than Joseph, who likes to let him know what the brothers are doing. But it's a benevolent mission. It's make sure things are good as they should be. And so uh, Joseph, he knows the hate, the treachery, the potential danger. So the father knows the risk and the son knows the risk, but they're willing both to be in agreement. And the father sends the son and the son agrees to go. That should remind you. And go he does right into the middle of a swarm of killer bees. Verse 18. But they saw him in the distance, the, the unrighteous brothers, <laughs> saw Joseph coming, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, <laughs> they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. 
throw them into one of these cisterns, empty wells, abandoned, and say some ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams bowing down to his sheaf. Come on. Uh, when Reuben, firstborn, bit of a conscience, maybe. <laughs> uh, the firstborn is always a little bit like that. When Reuben hears this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life. Settle down. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert. Don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So he had a secret uh, plan there. And so, yeah, uh, note takers, conspiracy to commit murder. And for what? Well, Jesus and Joseph share this as well. Uh, Jesus quoted the Old Testament line on a couple of occasions, Psalm 69 and verse 4, they hated me for no reason. There was absolutely no reason to hate me, Jesus said. And there was absolutely really no reason to hate or to kill Joseph. You may be annoyed with somebody, you may get jealous or envious, but there was nothing that he was doing uh, worthy of being murdered in cold blood, right? And so uh, interesting, by the way, that Pilate knew that Jesus was handed over to be executed because of out of envy. The same thing that's going on here. So they say in verse 19, here comes that dreamer, and the colorful robe gives uh, him away, kind of like a target on his back. They spot him from a distance. The sun is beaming down, and that's just like <laughs> iridescent um, madness there. And they hatch their insidious plan, like waving he, him coming down that long, dusty road is like waving a red flag in front of a frenzied bull or a lone gazelle appearing in a field filled with lions. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Our own brother. Let's kill him. Throw his corpse in an abandoned well and make up some stories attacked by some desert jackals. I wrote down here, but who really are the wild jackals? Who's the beast in the story? Joseph would be safe in a whole group of wild jackals, but at his own dinner table. And Jesus said that. Your own, your, a man's enemies will be, because of me, will be seated at your own dinner table. Wow. That's what's happened here. Now, one of them, Reuben, the firstborn, has a twinge of conviction. Let's not kill him. And there's this thing in Hebrew about spilling blood on the ground and that that blood stays on the ground and will cry out forever for justice. So he, he, there's a couple lines like this. Don't put the blood on the ground. We'll have to be dealing with that all of our lives. Uh, so his idea... Toss him in a well, leave him to die of exposure, starvation. Uh, at least that's what he wants the brothers to think because he has a plan to come back and rescue him and be the hero. Of course, these lofty ideas are never realized. And that's the thing. Have all the lofty ideas you want, but they're no good unless they come to pass. <laughs> and you're going to see this in the story. Lots of good, noble ideas, but they never quite get around to doing them. So 
his, his, his plan is to come back and rescue him and be the hero to death. Why? Suggested by commentators to atone for his unconscionable sin of sleeping with one of his father's wives. Reuben slept with Bilhah, Rachel's surrogate. So maybe he's going to try to say, Dad, well, look, can we be friends now? (laughs) Yeah. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him, as they stripped Jesus, of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern is in the shape of a bottle. It's very, very deep. And the top is very, very narrow. So they had to shove him down and get make sure he could fit through that opening. And then once you're down there, you're never getting out because the roof is kind of, you can climb up only so high, and then you'd have to be like a rock climber. And they didn't do that back in those days, apparently. <laughs> so there's no water at the bottom of the well. As they sat down, yeah, he's in pain. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites are the bad guys in the Old Testament. They're the terrorists coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They're traitors, right? And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. We'll get rid of him, make a few shekels, you know, make up a story for dad. Everything's good. After all, he's our brother, so let's not kill him. He is uh, genetically related to us. And his brothers say, oh, okay, let's not kill him. All right. And so, yeah, um, that's what they're going to do there. That's ending at verse 27. Okay, let the treachery begin. The robe's got to go. That's the first thing. They're so sick of that robe. They can't wait to tear it off of him. You know, so they do with perverse joy and pleasure. They detested that robe and everything it stood for. A reminder of that special love that Joseph enjoyed with him in a painful dig that he was the uh, heir apparent and not them, a stinging conviction of their own sin and guilt, that their current day shenanigans were about to be revealed back to their father by this young man. So they think, let's just solve the problem once and for all. Let's just get him out of here, throw him down a hole, that way he could die, uh, you know, without us murdering him. It's not our fault he ran out of water and food. <laughs> yeah, so they hurl him down in there. And by the way, lots of snakes down there. Little note. Note to self is the horror of that. And so, yeah, um, well, thankfully, all that work didn't deter their healthy appetite. Uh, so in verse 25, the after they shoved their brother to die into an empty well, they sit down to enjoy their meal, laughing and taunting probably if they're close by. How is it down there, dream boy? <laughs> you want one of my waffle fries? You're not, <laughs> you're not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, sorry. I just was craving waffle fries. That's it. Um, They sat there enjoying their meal. So sin puts calluses on the human heart and soul. I was reading about some murderer. And you, you see this a lot. After they killed the victim, they went to in and out and then went out clubbing to nightclubs. I guess you're going to go on with your life after you do the deed. You know, you kill the person you hate and what's left to do? Well, what's, you know, got to eat dinner somewhere. I mean, it just, it, this is a sick world. It's a sick world that Jesus is right around the corner and he's going to give the world exactly what the world has coming. We will be spared of that wrath because he paid for our wrath so he removes us from harm's way and then he says, you know what? And this is a quote. It's been building from the first murderer Cain that God's been building and building and building this thing called wrath. And it's from a word that means to build and to build and to build and then explode. So I'm just saying to all the evildoers in the world that don't know Christ and aren't covered by his blood, watch out. A day of reckoning is slated and it's on the books and there's nothing anybody can do. It is coming to a neighborhood near you. (laughs) All I gotta say. So now uh, enter God's saving sovereign hand the caravan (laughs) appears. The smart train's bound for Egypt and it's coming straight through that field. Go figure. And this inspires Judah. Let's not kill him. The whole blood thing. Let's just get rid of him and make a few bucks on the side. And so here comes the terrorists, merchandisers, who, by the way, to do what they do to Joseph, capital crime in Mosaic law. If they got caught, tried, they'd be sentenced and they'd all be killed for doing that to Joseph. So, yeah, moving on. We're almost done here. Verse 28. So, when the Midianite merchants, interchangeable Midianites and Ishmaelites, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, probably didn't say sorry about that, bro, and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Of course, Jesus was sold for more than that. But the idea of being sold for shekels is uh, a thing they share. To the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt when Reuben returned to the cistern for his plan, right? And saw that Joseph wasn't there, he tore his clothes. Like, oh, this is... This is not good. And he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Well, they filled him in, right? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped it, the robe into blood. Straight out of Revelation, Jesus comes with the robe dipped in blood. Verse 32, they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine, check it out. See whether it's your son's robe. Notice they don't say Joseph and they don't say our brother. They say your son. Okay, let's pause there. Sold into slavery here. Uh, Joseph begins his journey and Jacob begins mourning. He's going to mourn and they're going to let him mourn when he didn't have to mourn. For 23, 24 years, he's going to think he's dead. 
but he isn't dead. And so things look worse than they are for Joseph. Because Joseph, Joseph may think this is getting uh, worse and worse, but actually unbeknownst to these thugs and to Joseph, that God has begun a rescue plan. And that's the way it is with God. God can be rescuing you and you don't know it because we often look, walk by sight instead of faith. Jesus has walked by faith and not by sight or so the Holy Spirit through uh, the gospel writers and the New Testament writers. And so, yeah, are you in a predicament tonight? Who isn't? I mean, we all are in predicaments, aren't we? Uh, uh, but could it be that God is actually saving you? You're in the process of being saved and exalted from your humble place to a place uh, higher than you ever could imagine, more comfortable, more blessed. And it's happening right now. Well, it doesn't look like it's happening. Duh. Did it look like it was happening to him? He's bound like a, a madman in a cage, like an animal, on his way where? To Egypt. Doesn't look good. We walk by faith, not by sight. And, you know, I think Joseph is a man of God, even though he was 17. He's a man of God. He probably, like, you know, let me tell you, 2 Kings chapter 6, it's all about faith. Elisha was being hunted down by an army. They surrounded the city. Elisha's right-hand attendant, he went out to get the water in the morning. And he sees around the hills chariots, right? And every, on every hill, there's an enemy soldier. And so he comes running in to Elisha, and he's panicked. And he says, we're dead men. On every hill, there's a soldier. And he goes, are you kidding me? He goes, Lord, he takes him outside. Lord, open his eyes. And the guy sees behind the soldiers, the enemy lines, are God's soldiers all around. That's one of my favorite passages there that God says, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight. Listen, I'm quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Looking not to the things we can see, but to the unseen things, for the things we can see are temporal, but God works in invisible ways. So just, you know, if you're on your way to Egypt, in the caravan, and you're thinking, this is not looking good. Just know this. How about trusting God? How about trusting God, who says, I'm working everything out for your good? So, yeah. Uh, Joseph's future isn't in the hands of the Ishmaelites or wherever he ends up in Egypt. Uh, Pilate said to Jesus, oh, you're so quiet. Don't you realize I've got the power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, actually, you have no power except it comes from heaven. So everything you decree has been allowed. You see, Jesus knew who was in charge, who was running the show, as it were, who's in charge of your life. It's not the slave drivers, slave traders. It's not your crazy brothers who hate you. Even though you have no control, your hands are tied and your destiny and your well-being seems to be in someone else's control as it looked here. But God is working. God is working. 
<clears throat> despite what we see and feel. And so, your destiny, Joseph, I have written down here, is not in the hands of your hateful family members or hateful adversaries, the slave traders, but in the good hands of a gracious God, your Father, who loves you. And it's working all things together for good. So Reuben's private rescue plan fails. He returns a little late, <laughs> right on time from God's point of view. And Joseph's already up and out, uh, off to Egypt. And so uh, the commentary heading that I copied down from Creation and Blessing, a commentary on Genesis uh, by Dr. Alan Ross. Here's what he heads this section with. Those who would destroy the righteous find it necessary to deceive others about their sin, but succeed only in causing grief. Mm. So verse 30, with no further options in their minds, there's an option of telling the truth and owning it and telling dad what really happened, but they decide, let's just deceive our father and cover over our tracks. Verse 31, they slaughter a goat, dip the robe in blood, take it home, and then they put on <laughs> the, the most dramatic, tearful drama with better acting skills than anyone in Hollywood today. Oh, dad. Could this be that dumb, I mean, delightful robe that you made for your annoying, I mean, adoring son? And notice, as I said, they don't use his name, and it's your, your son. And so take a closer look, Dad. What do you think? You're the one who made it. Does the seams, the seams look like your work? It's hard to see through the blood. Let us know. Are you convinced? Either we think an animal devoured him. So now we're finishing up here. Verse 33, Jacob recognized it uh, and says, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. He's just quoting what they put in his head. Same exact words. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his own clothes, put on sack burlap. That's a cultural thing. Scratchy, terrible, uncomfortable, didn't eat, mourned for his son for many days. And as I said, it's 20 plus years. They're going to let him labor under, they don't care about him. They only care about themselves. Verse 35, all his sons and daughters, the extended family, there's about 70 of them. They all came to comfort him. They could see, your dad, you're not eating. Listen, life goes on, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, a typical Jewish thing. <laughs> In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. He, so his father wept for him. And so poor guy. You know, he's in all of this pain and it's needless. Needless. Just a, his favorite token reminder of his dearly loved wife. Gone, both of them now. And so, yeah, um, one commentator again said, embracing sin will turn you, uh, turn a human being into a brute beast and drain every drop of human sympathy and compassion and leave you with a heart of stone. You will be capable of doing the unthinkable. And that, to a mom or to a dad or to a son or to a daughter, because you won't care. You won't care. To get that fix, you'll sell your kid. And it happens. And we just see the ugliness of it here. So Jacob mourns. He, 
And uh, he's through all of that pain. And then I, I, you know, commentators say, too bad, Jacob's costly misstep, he refused to be comforted. He's a man of God. He is. He's he's got a lot of problems, right? Uh, But he's a man of God. He's spiritual. He knows the scriptures. He's met the Lord. So, but he refuses. And, and a lot of commentators say he's re- when he's doing this and when we do this and say, nope, I'm done. I'm staying here in my grief. That's really protesting what happened unto God, telling God, uh, here I am. You drew the line. At first, you know, I, I wanted one wife. I got four. The one wife I did marry couldn't have kids. Then she has kids. Then I'm enjoying the kid. She dies. And now he's gone. So you know what, God? You know what? I, I'm not going forward. I'm not going to be a blessing to others. People are going to come and want to have a party at my house. No, no, I'm in the back room and I'm crying my eyes out. And I'm going to do this every anniversary and I'm not going forward. I'm not playing the game anymore. You cross the line, that's it. I'm staying right here. That's kind of what he did there. He's just through with it, you know? And so... Life doesn't always go our way. So he's saying, I'm not getting over this. I'm going to protest here a little bit. So, yeah. I have also written down here, because I'm mad at the brothers. I I mean, I don't like them very much, as I'm sure you don't like them at the moment, right? Uh, So they're villains. And I said, congratulations, men. You got what you wanted. And look what you've done to a Bible hero. You wreaked havoc on the whole rest of the family just because of what you wanted. Verse 36 is the last verse. We've made it through the entire chapter. Ladies and gentlemen, last verse of the chapter. Meanwhile, the bad guys, the Midianites, slave traders, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, The captain of the guard. Now, wait a second. Everybody's going, whoa, wait a second. Things are taking a turn. Pharaoh is the king. The king of Egypt and the entire region, really. And now, what is going on here? That, well, he gets on the auction um, platform and the Bible describes him as very handsome and, quote, well-built. That's what the Bible says about him. And not only that, he's got a countenance, doesn't he? Because he's a good man, you see. And so he turned off his alarm. <laughs> and, and, and so he's on the auction block, and, and, and Potiphar and the attendants there, the guys who are looking for a cut above, who's that guy? You know, where's he from? Uh, we'll take that one. And so now God's like, ah, we're going to get him near to the Pharaoh, the king of the entire region. That's beautiful. Well, the, the caravan pulls up. The door opens up. Spencer, you back there? You paying attention? Just checking. No, I need you to because, you know, all right. The chariot pulls up, the doors open up. They're ready to take Joseph out. 
you just cannot, you're shocked and dismay at what happens next. Here it is. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I am so sorry to have to be the one to tell you that if you want to know what happens next in Potiphar's house, then you'll have to come next Wednesday. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life of Joseph and reflecting our greater love and joy, the life of our Lord Jesus, who came down from heaven and humbled himself, took the form of a slave, a servant, unto death, even death on a cross, and therefore you highly exalted him, God, and and us with him. We are ascended with Christ and even now, according to your word, we are seated in heavenly places with our Lord Jesus. We are safe. And you just said, walk this out. That's all you have to do. Walk it out. It's already been done. So we thank you. We praise you. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.